Epilogue, Part 2, of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt, by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Epilogue, Part 2. These cruel and miserable persecutions were but the beginning of a long martyrdom which the unfortunate prima donna heroically endured throughout her whole theatrical career. Every time she met Anzaletto, he occasioned her a thousand troubles, and it is sad to say that she met more than one Anzaletto in her life. Other Carillas tormented her with their envy and their malevolence, more or less perfidious or brutal. And of all these rivals, the first was still the least wicked and the most capable of a good impulse of the heart. But whatever may be said of the wickedness and the jealous vanity of the women of the theater, it was Consuelo's experience that when their vices entered the heart of a man, they degraded him still more and rendered him more unworthy of his part in humanity. Arrogant and debauched lords, the managers of theaters and news writers, also depraved by contact with so much pollution. Fine ladies, curious and fanciful protectresses, quick to intrude, but soon irritated at finding in a girl of that class more virtue than they had or wished to have. Finally, the public, often ignorant, almost always ungrateful or partial, these were so many enemies against whom Liverani's austere wife had to contend in unceasing sorrows. Persevering and faithful in art as in love, she was never rebuffed and pursued her career, always growing in the science of music as in the practice of virtue, failing often in the thorny pursuit of success, rising often also by justly deserved triumphs, remaining in spite of all, the priestess of art, better than Porporo himself understood it, and deriving constantly new strength from her religious faith, immense consolations from the ardent and devoted love of her husband. The life of that husband, though parallel with hers, for he accompanied her in all her journeys, is enveloped in thicker clouds. It may be presumed that he did not make himself the slave of his wife's fortune, and that he did not give himself up to the part of bookkeeper of the receipts and expenses of her profession. Consuelo's profession was moreover but little lucrative to her. The public did not then recompense artists with the prodigious munificence which distinguishes our times. Artists were enriched principally by the gifts of princes and the great, and those women who knew how to take advantage of their position, even then accumulated treasures. But chastity and disinterestedness are the greatest enemies of the fortune of a woman of the stage. Consuelo had many triumphs of esteem, some of enthusiasm, when by chance the perversity of those immediately about her did not interpose too much between her and the true public. But she had no triumph of gallantry, and infamy did not crown her with diamonds and with millions. 
her laurels remained without a stain and were not thrown to her upon the stage by interested hands. After ten years of labor and journeys, she was not more rich than at the time of her departure. She had not known how to speculate, and moreover she had not wished to. Two conditions without which riches do not overtake, in spite of themselves, laborers of any class. Besides, she had not hoarded the often contested product of her labors. She had constantly employed it in good works, and in a life secretly devoted to a constant propagandism. Her resources had not even been always sufficient. The central government of the Invisibles had sometimes supplied the deficiency. What was the real success of the ardent and indefatigable pilgrimage which Albert and Consuelo pursued through France, Spain, England, and Italy? There was nothing manifest to the world, and I think we must refer to twenty years later in order to find, by induction, the action of the secret societies in the history of the 18th century. Did those societies produce more effect in France than in the bosom of Germany, which originated them? The French Revolution replies with energy in the affirmative. Still the European conspiracy of Illuminism and the gigantic conceptions of Weishoff also showed that the divine dream of the Saint Grail had not ceased to agitate German minds thirty years later, in spite of the dispersion or the defection of the first adepts. We are informed by some old newspapers that the Porporina sang with great eclat at Paris in the operas of Pergolese, at London in the oratorios and operas of Handel, at Madrid with Farinelli, at Dresden with the Faustina and the Mingotti, at Venice, at Rome, and at Naples, in the operas and church music of Porpora and other great masters. All Albert's proceedings are unknown to us. Some billets of Consuelo to Trenck or to Wanda display to us that mysterious personage full of faith, of confidence, of activity, and enjoying, more than any other man, great clearness in his thoughts, up to an epoch at which authenticated documents entirely fail us. This is what has been related in a certain group of persons nearly all dead at this day of Consuelo's last appearance upon the stage. It was at Vienna, towards 1760. The cantatrice might be about 30. She was, they say, more beautiful than in her early youth. A pure life, habits of moral calmness and physical sobriety, had preserved her in all the power of her grace and of her talent. Some beautiful children accompanied her, but her husband was not known, though fame published that she had won and that she had been unchangeably faithful to him. Porpora, after having made several journeys into Italy, had returned to Vienna and produced a new opera at the Imperial Theatre. The twenty last years of this master are so unknown that we have not been able to find the name of this last work in any of his biographies. We only know that the Porporina filled the principal part in it with an undisputed success and drew tears from the whole court. The empress deigned to be satisfied, but during the night a check followed this triumph. 
The porporina received from some invisible messenger tidings which filled it with horror and consternation. At seven in the morning, that is at the moment when the empress was to be notified by the faithful valet who was called her majesty's floor scrubber, inasmuch as his duty was to open the blinds, kindle the fire, and dust the chamber while her majesty woke by degrees. The porporina, having gained all the keepers of the sacred passages by the power of gold and the force of eloquence, presented herself at the very door of the august sleeping chamber. My friend, she said to the scrubber, it is necessary that I should throw myself at the feet of the empress. The life of an honest man is in danger. The honor of a family is compromised. A great crime will perhaps be committed in a few days. If I do not see Her Majesty this very instant, I know that you are incorruptible, but I know also that you are a generous and magnanimous man. Everyone says so. You have obtained favors which the proudest courteous do not dare to solicit. Goodness of heaven, is it you whom I at last see once more, O oh dear mistress? cried the scrubber, clasping his hands and letting fall his feather broom. Carl, cried Consuelo in her turn. Thanks, oh my God, I am saved. Albert has a good angel even in this palace. Albert, Albert, returned Carl, is it he who is in danger? In that case, enter quickly, Signora, even though I should be dismissed, and God knows that I should regret my place, for I can do some good in it, and I serve our holy cause better than I have yet been able to do elsewhere. But Albert, the empress is a good woman when she does not govern, added he in a low voice. Enter, you will be supposed to have preceded me. Let the blame fall upon those scamps of valets who are not worthy to serve a queen, for they tell her nothing but lies. Consuelo entered, and the empress, on opening her heavy eyes, saw her kneeling and as if prostrate at the foot of her bed. Who is that? cried Maria Teresa, draping the bed covering over her shoulders with an accustomed majesty which had in it nothing affected, and rising as proud, as formidable in her nightcap and upon her pillow, as if she had been seated on the throne with the crown on her head and the sword by her side. Madam, replied Consuelo, it is a humble subject, an unfortunate mother, a despairing wife who, on her knees, asks of you the life and liberty of her husband. At this moment Carl entered, feigning a great surprise. Unhappy, cried he, pretending horror and fury, who has allowed you to enter here? I compliment you, Carl, said the Empress, on your vigilance and fidelity. Never before did such a thing happen in my life as to be awakened with a start by such insolence. Let your majesty but say the word, returned Carl boldly, and I killed this woman before your eyes. Carl knew the empress well. He knew that she liked to perform deeds of mercy before witnesses, and that she could be a great queen and a great woman, even to her valets de chambre. That is too much zeal, replied she, with a smile that was at once majestic and maternal. Retire and allow this poor weeping woman to speak. I am not in danger from any of my subjects, 
What do you wish, madam? But it is you, my beautiful porporina. You will ruin your voice if you sob in that manner. Madam, replied Consuelo, I was married before the Catholic Church ten years since. I have not a single fault against honor with which to reproach myself. I have legitimate children whom I educate in virtue. I dare, therefore. In virtue, I know, said the Empress, but not in religion. You are chaste, I have been told, but you never go to church. Still, speak. What misfortune has befallen you? My husband, from whom I have never been separated, resumed the suppliant, is now at Prague, and I know not by what infernal machination has been arrested, thrown into a dungeon, accused of wishing to take a name and title which do not belong to him of wishing to despoil an inheritance, of being, in fine, an intriguer, a spy, arrested on this ground of high treason, and condemned to perpetual imprisonment, to death, perhaps, at this moment. At Prague, an impostor, said the Empress calmly. I have a story like that in the reports of my secret police. What is your husband's name? For you cantatrices do not bear the names of your husband's. His name is Liverani. That is it. Well, my child, I am grieved to know that you are married to such a wretch. That Liverani is, in fact, a chevalier d'industry, or a crazy man, who, owing to a perfect resemblance, wishes to pass for a Count de Rudelstadt, who died ten years since, as has been ascertained. He presented himself as such to an old canonist de Rudelstadt, whose nephew he dares to call himself, and whose inheritance he would certainly have obtained if, at the moment of making her will in his favor, the poor lady, who had fallen into second childhood, had not been delivered from his arts by well-intentioned persons devoted to the family. He was arrested, which was right. I can conceive your sorrow, but cannot remedy it. The trial must proceed." if it be decided that this man, as I wish to believe, is insane. He will be placed in a hospital, where you can see and nurse him. But if he be only a swindler, as I fear, it will be necessary to restrain him a little more severely, in order to prevent his disturbing the possession of the true heiress of Rudelstadt, a Baroness Amelia who, after some youthful errors, is on the point of being married to one of my officers. I like to persuade myself, mademoiselle, that you are ignorant of your husband's conduct and that you are under an illusion respecting his character. Otherwise, I should consider your importunities as very much misplaced. But I pity you too much to wish to humiliate you. You can retire." Consuelo saw that she had nothing to hope, and that by endeavoring to establish the identity of Liverani with Albert de Rudelstadt, she would render his cause more and more unfavorable. She rose and walked towards the door, pale and ready to faint. Maria Teresa, who followed her with a scrutinizing eye, had pity on her, and recalling her, "'You are much to be pitied,' said she to her, in a more sympathizing voice. All this is not your fault, I am convinced. Be calm and take care of yourself. 
the matter shall be conscientiously examined, and if your husband does not wish to destroy himself, I will so arrange that he shall be adjudged insane. If you can communicate with him, give him so to understand. That is my advice. I will follow it, and I bless your majesty. But without your protection, I can do nothing. My husband is imprisoned at Prague, and I am engaged at the Imperial Theater of Vienna. If your majesty does not deign to grant me a congé, and to give me an order that I may communicate with my husband, who is au secret? You ask a great deal. I do not know if Monsieur de Kraunitz will be willing to grant you that congé, and if it will be possible to fill your place at the theater. We will see about it in a few days. In a few days, cried Consuelo, recovering her courage, but in a few days it will be too late. I must depart on the very instant. That is enough, said the Empress. Your persistence will be injurious to you. If you display it before judges less calm and less indulgent than I am, go, mademoiselle. Consuelo ran to the cannon blank and entrusted her children to his care, informing him that she was going away and did not know the duration of her absence. If you leave us for a long while, so much the worse, replied the good old man. As to the children, I am not sorry. They shall be thoroughly educated and will be company for Angela, who gets rather tired with me. Listen, replied Consuelo, who could not restrain her tears after having clasped her children for the last time to her heart. Do not tell them that my absence will be long, but know that it may be eternal. I am, perhaps, about to undergo sorrows from which I may not recover, unless God performs a miracle in my favor. Pray to him for me, and teach my children to pray. The good canon did not try to draw her secret from her, but as his peaceful and nonchalant mind did not easily admit the idea of a misfortune without remedy, he tried to console her. Seeing that he did not succeed in restoring hope to her, he wished at least to put her mind at rest respecting the lot of her children. My dear Bertoni, said he to her, with an accent from the heart, and striving to assume a cheerful air through his tears, if you do not return, your children belong to me, remember that. I undertake their education. I will have your daughter married, which will somewhat diminish Angela's dowry, and will make her more industrious. As to the boys, I warn you that I shall make musicians of them. Joseph Hayden will share that burden, replied Consuelo, kissing the canon's hand, and old Porpora will still give them some lessons. My poor children are docile and promise to be intelligent. I am not anxious about their physical existence. They will be able some day to earn their livelihood honestly. But my love and my advice, you alone can fill my place with them. And I promise it to you, cried the canon. I hope to live long enough to see them all established. I am not yet too fat, and my leg is still strong. I am not more than sixty, though formerly that wretch of a Bridget which to make me old in order to induce me to draw my will. Come, my daughter, 
courage and health, depart and return. The good God is with honest people. Consuela, without troubling herself about her congé, caused post horses to be harnessed to her carriage. But at the moment of entering it, she was delayed by Porpora, whom she had not wished to see, anticipating a storm, and who was frightened at seeing her depart. He feared, in spite of the promises she made to him with a constrained and absent air, that she would not return in time for the opera of the next day. Who the devil thinks of going into the country in the depth of winter, said he, with the nervous trembling, half the effect of age, half of anger and fear. If you get cold, my success is compromised, and everything was going on so well. I don't understand you. We triumphed yesterday, and you travel today. This discussion made Consuelo lose a quarter of an hour and gave time to the managers of the theater, who were already informed, to send notice to the authorities. A piquet of Hulans came and ordered the horses to be taken out. Consuelo was requested to re-enter, and a guard was placed about her house to prevent her escaping. She was attacked by fever. She did not perceive it, and continued walking to and fro in her apartment, in prey to a kind of distraction, and answering only by gloomy and fixed looks to the irritating questions of Porpora and the manager. She did not go to bed, and passed the night in prayer. The next morning she appeared calm, and went to the rehearsal by order. Her voice had never been more beautiful, but she had absences of mind which terrified Porpora. Oh, cursed marriage! Oh, infernal madness of love! murmured he in the orchestra, banging upon his harpsichord as if he would have broken it. Old Porpora was still the same, he would willingly have said. Perish all the lovers and all the husbands in the world rather than my opera. In the evening, Consuela made her toilette as usual and presented herself upon the stage. She took her place, and her lips articulated a word, but not a sound issued from her chest. She had lost her voice. The stupefied public rose en masse. The courteous, who began to know something vaguely of her attempted flight, declared that it was an intolerable caprice. There were cries, shouts, applauses at each fresh effort of the cantatrice. She tried to speak and could not make a single word heard. Still she remained standing and sad, not thinking of the loss of her voice, not feeling humiliated by the indignation of her tyrants, but resigned and proud as an innocent victim condemned to an unjust punishment and thanking God for having sent this sudden infirmity, which would permit her to leave the stage and rejoin Albert. It was proposed to the Empress to put the refractory artist in prison in order to make her recover her voice and willingness. Her Majesty had been angry for a moment, and the courteous thought to gratify her by overwhelming the accused. But Maria Theresa, who sometimes permitted crimes by which she profited, did not like to make people suffer unnecessarily. Count it, she said to her prime minister, let a permit for departure be given to that poor creature without further question. If her extension of voice be a ruse de guerre, it is at least an act of virtue. 
Few actresses would sacrifice an hour of triumph to a life of conjugal love. Consuelo, provided with all necessary powers, at last departed, ill as before, but without perceiving it. Here we again lose the thread of events. Albert's trial might have been celebrated. It was made secret. It is probable that it was similar in its fundamental points to the suit which, about the same epoch, Frederick de Trenck undertook, maintained and lost, after many years of struggle. Who would now know in France the details of that iniquitous affair, if Trenck himself had not taken pains to publish them and repeat his earnest complaints during thirty years of his life? But Albert left no writings. We shall therefore be compelled to refer to the history of the Baron de Trenck, since he also is one of our heroes, and his embarrassments will perhaps throw some light upon the misfortunes of Albert and Consuelo. Hardly a month after the assemblage of the St. Grail, a circumstance respecting which Trenck had kept the most profound secrecy in his memoirs, he was recaptured and confined at Magdeburg, where he consumed the ten finest years of his life in a horrible dungeon, seated upon a stone which bore his anticipated epitaph. Here lies Trenck, and loaded with eighty pounds of fetters. Everyone knows the history of that celebrated imprisonment, the odious circumstances which accompanied it, such as the anguish of hunger which he was made to undergo for eighteen months, and the care taken to build a prison for him at the expense of his sister, in order to punish the latter by ruining her, for having given him an asylum his miraculous attempts at escape, the incredible energy which never abandoned him, and which his chivalric imprudences rendered of no avail, his labors of art in the prison, the marvelous chiselings which he succeeded in making with the point of a nail upon pewter goblets, and of which the allegories and poetical devices are so profound and so touching. Footnote. There are some still remaining in private museums of Germany. Finally, his secret relations, in spite of all, with the Princess Amelia of Prussia, the despair by which the latter was consumed, the pain she took to render herself ugly by a corrosive liquid which almost destroyed her sight, the deplorable condition to which she voluntarily reduced her own health in order to avoid the necessity of marriage, the frightful revolution which took place in her character. In fine, those ten years of desolation which made of Trank a martyr, and of his illustrious mistress, an old woman, ugly and wicked, instead of an angel of gentleness and beauty, which he had been and might have continued to be in a state of happiness. Footnote. Look in Thibault for the portrait of the abbess of Quindlinburg and the curious revelations appended to it. All this is historical, but is not sufficiently remembered in tracing the portrait of Frederick the Great. This crime, accompanied with gratuitous and refined cruelties, is an ineffaceable stain upon the memory of that philosophic despot. At last Trank was set at liberty, as is known, thanks to the intervention of Maria Theresa, who claimed him as her subject, 
and this tardy protection was finally obtained for him by the cares of Her Majesty's chamber scrubber, the same with our Carl. There are some very curious and interesting pages in the memoirs of the day respecting the ingenious intrigues of that magnanimous plebeian to influence the mind of his sovereign. During the first years of Trank's captivity, his cousin, the famous Pandor, the victim of accusations more deserved but not less hateful and cruel, had died of poison at Spielberg. Hardly free, Trank the Prussian came to Vienna to claim the immense property of Trank the Austrian. But Maria Theresa was not in the least inclined to surrender it to him. She had profited by the exploits of the Pandor. She had punished him for his violences. She wished to profit by his rapines, and she did profit in fact. Like Frederick II, like all great crowned intellects, while the power of her character dazzled the masses, she did not consider as false those secret iniquities of which God and men will demand an account at the day of judgment, and which will weigh as much in one scale of the balance as official virtues in the other. Conquerors and sovereigns, in vain do you employ your treasures in the building of temples. You are not the less impious when a single piece of that gold is the price of blood and of suffering. In vain do you subdue whole races by the splendor of your arms. The men most blinded by the prestige of your glory will reproach you for one single man, for one single blade of grass coldly broken. The muse of history, still blind and uncertain, almost allows that there have been in the past necessary and justifiable great crimes. But the inviolable conscience of humanity protests against its own error by reproving at least those crimes which were useless to the success of great causes. The covetous designs of the Empress were wonderfully seconded by her proxies. The ignoble agents whom she had named curators of the Pandora's property, and by the prevaricating magistrates who decided upon the rights of the heir. Each had his share in the quarry. Maria Theresa thought she had secured that of the lion, but it was in vain that, some years later, she sent to prison and to the galleys the unfaithful accomplices of this great plunder. She could not obtain the complete fulfillment of her wishes. Trank was ruined and never obtained justice. Nothing gives us a better knowledge of Maria Theresa's character than that part of Trank's memoirs in which he describes his interviews with her on this subject. Without departing from his respect towards royalty, which was then an official religion with patricians, he causes us to perceive the dryness, the hypocrisy, and the cupidity of that great woman. A union of contrasts, a sublime and mean character, artless and crafty, like all fine souls subjected to the corruption of absolute power, that anti-human cause of all evil, that inevitable reef against which all noble instincts are fatally dashed and broken. Resolved to dismiss the plaintiff, the sovereign often deigned to console him, to give him hope, to promise him protection against the infamous judges who despoiled him, and at the end, 
pretending to have failed in the pursuit of truth and to understand nothing in the labyrinth of this interminable suit. She offered to him, as a compensation, the poor rank of major and the hand of an ugly old woman, devout and gallant. Upon Trenk's refusal, the matrimoniomaniac, Empress, declared to him that he was a presumptuous fool, that she knew no means of satisfying his ambition, and turned away to think no more of him. The reasons which were given for the confiscation of the Pandora's property had varied according to persons and circumstances. One tribunal had decided that the Pandora, having died under the operation of an ignominious sentence, was not capable of making a will. Another, that if the will was valid, the rights of the heir as a Prussian subject were not so. Another, finally, that the debts of the deceased absorbed more than the inheritance, etc. Objection was raised after objection. Justice was sold a thousand times to the claimant and was never granted to him. Footnote. We will here recall to the reader, not to recur to it again, the remainder of Trink's history. He grew old in poverty, employed his energy in the publication of an opposition journal of quite an advanced character for the times, and married to a woman of his choice, the father of numerous children, persecuted for his opinions, for his writings, and doubtless also for his connection with secret societies. He took refuge in France at quite an advanced old age. He was there welcomed with the enthusiasm and confidence of the earlier days of the Revolution. But, destined to be the victim of the most fatal mistakes, he was arrested as a foreign agent during the Reign of Terror and conducted to the scaffold. He went thither with great firmness. He had before seen himself flattered and represented upon the stage in a melodrama which retraced the history of his captivity and deliverance. He had saluted with transport the liberty of France. Upon the fatal card, he said, smiling, This also is a comedy. He had seen the Princess Amelia only once for more than sixty years. On learning the death of Frederick the Great, he hastened to Berlin. The two lovers, at first terrified by the aspect of each other, burst into tears and swore a new affection. The abbess ordered him to bring his wife, took charge of their fortune and wished to retain one of the girls with her as a reader or governess, but she could not keep her promises. In a week she was dead. Trank's memoirs, written with the passion of a young man and the prolixity of an old one, are nevertheless one of the most noble and most interesting monuments of the history of the last century. To despoil and proscribe Albert there was no need of all these artifices, and the spoliation was doubtless effected without so much ceremony. It was enough to consider him dead, and to forbid him the right of resuscitating mal apropos. Albert certainly had claimed nothing. We only know that at the time of his arrest, the canoness Wenzelawa had just died at Prague whither she had gone to be treated for an acute ophthalmia. Albert, learning that she was in extremity, could not resist the voice of his heart, which cried to him to go and close the eyes of his dear relative. He left Consuelo on the frontiers of Austria and hastened to Prague. 
It was the first time that he had re-entered Germany since the year of his marriage. He flattered himself that an absence of ten years and certain precautions of dress would prevent his being recognized, and he approached his aunt without much mystery. He wished to obtain her blessing and to make amends by a last testimonial of love and sorrow for the abandonment to which he had been compelled to leave her. The canoness, almost blind, was struck by the simple sound of his voice. She did not account for what she experienced, but gave herself up to the instinct of tenderness which had survived in her both memory and the activity of her reasoning powers. She pressed him in her failing arms, calling him her well-beloved Albert, her forever blessed son. Old Hans was dead, but the Baroness Amelia, and a woman of the Bermavald who served the Candoness and had formerly been sick nurse to Albert himself, were astonished and terrified by the resemblance of this pretended physician to the young Count. Still, it does not appear that Amelia positively recognized him. We do not wish to believe her an accomplice in the persecutions which were so bitter against him. We only know that some circumstances attracted the attention of that cloud of agents, half magistrates, half spies, by the help of whom the court of Vienna governs subject nations. What is certain is that hardly had the canonist breathed forth her last sigh in the arms of her nephew, when the latter was arrested in question respecting his employment and the motives which had brought him to the bedside of the deceased. They wished to see his physician's diploma. He had one in due form, but they disputed his name of Liberani, and certain persons remembered having met him elsewhere under that of Trismegasus. He was accused of having exercised the profession of quack and of magician. It was impossible to prove that he had ever received money for his cures. He was confronted with the Baroness Amelia, and this caused his ruin. Irritated and driven to extremity by the investigations to which he was subjected, tired of concealing and disguising himself, he suddenly announced to his cousin, in an observed tete-a-tete, that he was Albert de Rudelstadt. Amelia doubtless recognized him at this moment, but she fainted, terrified at so strange an occurrence. Thenceforth, the affair took another turn. The magistrates wished to consider Albert as an impostor, but in order to give rise to one of those interminable suits which ruin both parties, employees of the same class as those who had despoiled Trank succeeded in compromising the accused by making him say and maintain that he was Albert de Rudelstadt. A long inquest followed. They produced the testimony of Sufferville, who, perhaps in good faith, refused to doubt that he had seen him die at Riesenberg. The disinterment of the body was ordered. There was found in the tomb a skeleton, which it had not been difficult to place there the day before. They persuaded his cousin that it was her duty to contend with an adventurer determined to rob her. Doubtless no interview was again permitted. The complaints of the captive and the earnest appeals of his wife were smothered under the locks and tortures of a prison. Perhaps they were ill and dying in separate cells. When the affair was once commenced, 
Albert could only secure his honor and liberty by proclaiming the truth. It did no good for him to renounce the inheritance and wish to bequeath it on the moment to his cousin. They determined to prolong and embarrass the suit. They succeeded without difficulty, either because the empress was deceived or because she was given to understand that the confiscation of this fortune was not to be despised any more than that of the Pandora. In order to succeed, a quarrel was sought with Amelia herself. The scandal of her former flight was brought up. Her want of devotion was remarked, and she was threatened with confinement in a convent if she did not surrender her rights to a litigated inheritance. She was obliged to do so, and to be contented with her father's estate, which was much reduced by the enormous cost she was compelled to pay in a suit to which she had been constrained. At last the chateau and domain of Riesenberg were confiscated to the profit of the state, when the advocates, the attorneys, the judges, and the reporters had obtained upon this plunder mortgages amounting to two-thirds of its value. Such is our commentary upon this mysterious suit, which lasted five or six years, and at the termination of which Albert was driven from the Austrian states as a dangerous madman by the special grace of the empress. From this epoch, it is certain that an obscure and more and more poor life was the lot of our couple. They recalled their youngest children. Hayden and the canon tenderly refused to give up the two oldest, who were educated under the eyes and at the expense of those faithful friends. Consuelo had irrevocably lost her voice. It appears too certain that captivity, inaction, and sorrow at the sufferings experienced by his companion had again shaken Albert's reason. Still, it does not appear that their love had become less tender, their souls less proud, or their conduct less pure. The invisibles had disappeared under persecution. The work had been ruined, especially by the charlatans who had speculated upon the enthusiasm of new ideas and the love of the marvelous. Persecuted anew as a Freemason in the countries of intolerance and despotism, Albert must have taken refuge in France or England. Perhaps he there continued his propagandism, but it must have been among the people, and his labors, if they bore their fruit, made no display. Here there is a great gap, which our imagination cannot supply. But a last authentic and very detailed document has enabled us to find, towards the year 1774, the couple wandering in the forest of Bohemia. We will transcribe this document as it has come to us. It will be for us the last word respecting Albert and Consuelo, for afterwards, of their life and of their death, we know absolutely nothing. End of epilogue. Part 2, 